episode 37 of Utah in the Weeds. Tim, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. We're, we're uh, glad to have our first return guest. No, I'm sorry. It's our second return guest. Oh, that's right. Uh, just as important, Desiree Hennessy with the Utah Patients Coalition. Yeah, she was originally on episode six, episode six of the podcast, if you want to go back and listen to that one too. We're glad to have you. We're still doing virtual, you know, here we are in the beginning of COVID winter and we're still doing virtual podcasts. Eventually they'll just start dating life like that. COVID winter number one, first COVID winter. I go back and I talk about, um, you know, the day the world ended. I still remember the weekend my calendar fell apart and everything was erased. Right. Now we push, we just push on. Right. (laughs) So where should we start with this, Tim? Yeah, let's start. Let's just, I mean, I kind of want to jump back in like with the Utah Patients Coalition. And when we met with Desiree before, we talked a lot about the history of the bill, the medical cannabis bill, what had been proposed, how all of that worked out, the compromise. I remember talking a lot about that, right? Yep. And the reason why we asked you to come on again was we have a new proposal that potentially could expand or not the cannabis program. There's some privacy things we can talk about too, but tell us a little bit about where the cannabis program is at from your perspective, I guess. Let's just start there. So where we're at right now, we still don't have all of the pharmacies open. We still don't have all of the cultivation, uh, the grows open, but we have product on the shelf. We have patients purchasing. We have you know, still a, a wide range of conditions that are getting utilized. We have a compassionate use board for the patients that are falling outside of that. And they have, they're reporting back a 90% um, approval rating for patients that come through. We have, uh, you know, I mean, we, we have issues with product shortages, which isn't strange for a, a new program. Uh, we have issues with not a, a lot of different product options. We have a lot of problems with patients still trying to find a QMP or a, you know, a physician that will uh, get them on the state program. And, you know, I mean, it's, we have, we have good and bad and, but the, the thing that I makes me not complain is I always am seeing progress. So, uh, so far I haven't hated anything too much quite yet. That's good. Now, when we talked before, we were in hopes of 100, 150 QMPs. I remember talking to Rich Oborn about this as well. And do you know the current like number of QMPs? I should have looked before I got a no, but it's it's above 600 now, right? Yeah, I mean it's certainly above 500. Um and I like I have I don't know either. Yeah, I think we've breached 100, 600. I want to say we were hitting we were hoping to be around 800 by now with, because we were seeing a steady increase all the time. And so, uh, you know, I remember thinking, let's hope for 800 by Christmas. And I, I want to say that we're there or really close. So that's a good, that's good compared to kind of what was originally hoped for on the one hand, right? That, that we have providers like willing to get into the system on, on the one hand, right? Like I know we're going to get into talking about, the potential issues with access, but I think that was a pretty good milestone. It's very encouraging to say the least. Now we've just got to get all the patients to the doctors. 
And okay, so let's back up a little bit. Talk about how many there are over twenty thousand legal cannabis users in Utah. Is that about? That's about around a round number. And again, it's going up all the time, pretty steady. Uh, but yeah, just about twenty thousand. The problems that we're seeing though is a lot of the QMPs. Um, some are still not recommending; they just wanted to take the course, and some are not accepting new patients. <laughs> you know. There's, there's, there's different reasons. Um, you know, some were just doing a handful of patients. There's just, there's a lot of different reasons why they've taken the QMP course, but then, you know, those physicians aren't necessarily, and like, you know, Tim, they're not necessarily the ones that are carrying the bulk of the patients that need cards. They're, you know, seeing their few, and then we still have the specialist doctors that are recommending just for medical cannabis that seem to be carrying that, that seem to be, you know, still very needed, right? Yeah, so that's where we're that's where we are, and that's actually kind of what birthed this plan that we have come up with this year for the session. If you want to talk about that, if not, we can keep asking questions. No, everybody is very interested in this. Yeah, um, please share this new plan, right? Like anything that will change or or promote the plan or talk about the plan. Everybody's talking about this bill. So the depending on who you talk to and depending on the moment, this change, these changes are either referred to as huge or small, right? Like it's either a huge change and at the same time, it's not that big of a change. Uh, It was something that I came up with when we were calling QMPs who had written letters, but not cards, weren't putting patients on the card system or uh, just calling them to see if they had any questions, just just trying to get a fill for these QMPs or possible QMPs and if we were going to get this program up off the ground. Knowing that the climate for raising patient caps is not there at the legislative level. Like I could cry, scream, beg, whatever, and that's not going to happen. And really there's only a couple doctors that have, or QMPs that have reached that cap. And so I don't really even have a big reason to ask. Um, it's not like they're overburdened and, and they need them raised, except for in a couple situations. And so in talking to these doctors, I found, like I said, there's a couple of reasons, you know, either they they were afraid that it would risk their license. They had a policy against it from their own work. They didn't understand. So they just didn't feel comfortable. They're like, maybe I took my QMP. Maybe I have patients that want to use it, but I just don't feel comfortable. And, um, you know, and, and actually interesting enough, a lot of those physicians and Tim, I know you got some of these as well, where you would have a doctor from, or a primary care physician from someplace like Intermountain hospital, write a diagnosis letter and send it to a QMP and say, Hey, I have this patient. I think that they could be using this medication, but I don't want to do it. Will you? And it was on letterhead from another doctor's office. And so that was kind of what started birthing this idea for me. And what I proposed isn't what's shaken out. Um, So I'll tell you about what I proposed and then the changes made there is the proposal was, is that we would allow a patient to get a diagnosis letter from their primary care physician or, you know, whoever they were seeing for that condition. They would take the letter to the pharmacist or it could be faxed over and then verified. And then the pharmacist who 
there's no doubt that the pharmacists in Utah have become specialists in medical cannabis. They know the products that are out there. They know what conditions they're working for and they understand routes and, and dosing. And a lot of medical providers are asking the physician, sorry, the pharmacist to already handle the dosing and handle the route. That's something that we already gave them the power to do. And so that there was no change there. We were just saying, and while you're doing that, will you put them on the EVS? That removes the liability that some doctors were feeling about losing their license. They're like, if I start writing medical cannabis, putting patients on the card system, I'm going to lose my license. Even though that's not true, it was a big concern. Also, if they had a policy about it saying that they couldn't recommend, they can diagnose. There's nothing saying that they couldn't diagnose a patient and pass that on to a medical cannabis pharmacist, right? So we thought that that kind of solved those. In turn, the pharmacies loved this idea because it gave them better communication with the doctors, better communication with the patients, and they were willing to manage the EVS. Another thing is that a lot of medical providers had just said that they felt like managing the EVS system was almost a full-time job, that they would, in order to be proficient at it, you needed to be doing it every day. And if they were going to do that, then they needed to hire somebody just for the EVS and they weren't interested. So we did have QMPs that got their QMP and then decided not to just because of the EVS. Well, the pharmacists aren't going to have that problem. This is their job. They're there. Part of the law that we did not like in the beginning required the pharmacist to be there from lights on to lights off. We fought that tooth and nail, didn't get anywhere. And in the end, I'm not mad because now we have these specialists that are there and can now enter in what's called a collaborative practice agreement with the medical professional and get the patient on the EBS, get them the right dose, report back to the you know, medical professional or QMP, I mean, sorry, uh, PCP or, or whatever we're going to call them there, because it could be an APRN or a PA or whatever. And then at any time that this primary care physician says, no, like, I, I don't want this patient on here anymore, they just take them off and then report back that they did. Um, so they have that as well. Any renewals like that will just be handled like, hey, do you want to renew this patient? The doctor says yes. The pharmacist does the renewal. If the doctor wants to see the patient at six months or at three months or whatever, they just report to the pharmacist, hey, before you renew this, I would like to see my patient and they can, and they can handle that with the patient, but then they can also leave a note for the pharmacist that says, don't renew this. They haven't come in, right? There's a ton of communication that can happen there. And so when I proposed this to, you know, the legislative body or, you know, the people working on this law specifically, the interest was definitely there. The concerns were that they felt like if a doctor or, you know, a medical professional was going to do this. They felt like they enter in these kind of agreements all the time, but if they're going to do it more than say 15 times, then they wanted them to get their QMP license at that point. Just so they said, well, at that point, they've showed that there's enough interest that we at least want them to take the class. But even if they take the class now, we're, I believe we're still going to allow them to pass the buck and have the pharmacist put the patient on the EVS. So if it's an EVS issue, if it's just a time issue, if it's just keeping up on it or understanding it, let's let doctors be doctors. Let's let them diagnose. Let's let the the pharmacist handle the rest of that stuff. So, so that's what it's looking like right now. I don't personally love the 15 cap and take a class. I hope we don't see doctors, you know, drop off after the 15, but it's, at least it gives us time to see if this is going to work. And again, 
it's a compromise. Whenever you're entering into big changes like this, you're never going to get everything you want. And I feel like at least in this case, I got 70, 80%, right? So uh, will this this will be a good first step. Another thing is that I know that if this works really well this year, then it's a great opportunity to go back and and revisit this next year. They seem way more open to raising this number than just patient caps because it does keep patients with the original provider. And then it leaves these specialist doctors for the patients that their doctor is unmovable, right? A lot of a lot of patients that absolutely cannot find a doctor, the QMPs that are writing letters or getting them on the card system are reaching the ends of their caps, and then they the, those patients are kind of be, going to be left in the in the dark. So we would like to leave those specialist doctors for these, especially like veterans stuff like that. That, that that's their only option. So not flooding that market with patients that have the possibility of staying with their regular doctor. Are doctors then, do you feel like, or does the legislature feel like they're taking the liability away? Because it seems to me if I write a letter or if I make a recommendation for cannabis, that that is my medical decision. I still have to be the one making the decision. So that decision still falls on the medical provider to make that recommendation. So that that to me doesn't seem to solve the liability issue. I still feel like I need approval from my employer to do that. I still need medical malpractice to do that. How how is that being handled? The truth is, is there's yeah, if there's a malpractice suit or something like that, that's still going to come back, right? But a lot of the doctors just don't want. They just don't feel comfortable. So, or they feel like it's going to, if they deal with the medical, if they're, you know, recommending if they're, if, cause remember the, the big concern was that if they cross that line and they start talking about dosing and routes, then they have entered into almost like a prescription. And so we have doctors that are concerned to kind of cross that line. This again, just is another step of removed of them not having to feel like they've crossed that line into something federally illegal. And when we vetted doctors, they liked the idea, but you're right. If somebody wants to sue, like if you write a letter for me and I fall on the back. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the fact is I'm, I'm the one making the recommendation. And yeah, right. I think that, you know, if you did it one or two times and, and I discussed this with, with Ray Ward as well, you know, if you're doing it one or one or two times or, or three or four times and you don't carry malpractice for cannabis, then maybe you feel kind of comfortable with that. Whereas if you do it 275 times, you want to, you know, potentially get a mal, a malpractice policy that covers cannabis you know, I worked for Steward Medical Group for six years, and they forbid all of us from writing any recommendations. And so that's not going to change. They're not going to add to their, you know, th- that's, they're not going to help. This bill would not help them. Even if you remove them to the pharmacist, I don't think that, I'm sure their employer, because they would have to write it in the chart, right? You're going to have to say, well, this patient comes in for chronic pain. I'm going to I, I am going to allow my my MA to tell the pharmacist that it's okay. I think that that won't work, but I'm sure there's a few pharmacists. When I talked to, to uh, Dr. Ward, Ray Ward about this, he said a very similar thing as you're saying. 
the introduction of cannabis into a practice is what the goal is. And, and this feels like it is a legislation that is trying to introduce cannabis into practices that wouldn't normally have cannabis as an option. You know, try it, get your, stick your toe in the water. Dangle the carrot. So to speak, right? A patient comes in, says, hey, doc, I really want to try cannabis. You're like, eh, I don't really want to, but okay, I'll write you this letter. Patient comes back, says, hey, I had a great experience. You know, this is really working. The pharmacist helped me get some, you know, get some products and it's working. Then the provider says, oh, I'll try that again. Tries it three or four times and then decides, okay, I want to get involved and I think I should take this a little more seriously. Uh, is that kind of how you you see this working for, for providers? I think that's the hope also because they have a pharmacist that they can talk with, you know, like they, they have somebody that's handling the dose. They're handling the things that the primary care physician maybe doesn't understand right in the beginning, 15 times with 15 different patients. We're hoping that it kind of gives them you know, dips their toe in the water, right? Like they, they feel like they've done it. They've seen it work well. Maybe out of those 15 patients, we can assume that at least 10, it worked well and they can decided to continue use that medical provider hopefully would then feel like they had enough, you know, they, they had, that they had enough experience to do it themselves or to like take the QMP course and try. Um, but we are not removing the safety net of the pharmacist. The pharmacist is still there as a collaborative practice, you know, partner at that time. So is there some safeguards to the pharmacist being involved? And, you know, the pharmacist is employed by the drug manufacturer. Mm -hmm. And this has always been a very big concern of mine that you have in no other industry, except we did know that in the, in the opioid industry, when people were involved in the in the manufacturing and sale of opioids, right. it tended to give people bad advice, and we ended up with a big controversy. And one of our state senate one of our state senators was involved in that controversy. Right, and we still have pharmacists now. We have pharmacists that are employed by the manufacturer of the drug they sell. Is it concerning to you, or should it be concerning to patients that we have this? unique, I would say, relationship? Uh, if cannabis was more of a risky product, then I would say yes. If there was more risk for addiction, um, if there was more risk for overdose. But right now what we're dealing with, we're, not, we're most of the time not dealing with patients that are new and they're trying this out for the first time. And, and so we're sticking them in a predatory market where these people are just trying to get them, you know, as much drugs as possible. These patients are we are just trying to stop as many patients as we can from being illegal and using the black market or going out of state. And in the name of just trying to keep them safe. And so, you know, if you've been using cannabis for a year and a half and now your letter expires and it's been working for you, I can't think of very many patients that are just going to say, all right, fine, I'm going back to opiates. And so, uh, this is just the avenue that we could come up with. And I do see the similarities in all of those. And like I said, if it was a riskier product, then yeah, there would be a problem. And if in the next couple of years, we see that this isn't working, this is always something that we can change. We can change it in a year from now if we want. We could have a special session and say this didn't work out. 
But right now, for the sake of keeping, because we have potentially, the number is coming down, but in the beginning, we had potentially 10,000 patients that had a letter that we're not going to get a card. And we needed to get them on the EVS somehow because not not believing that any of them or, or at least believing that a majority of them were now just going to become illegal users, this was an avenue that we came up with. So like I said, there's always room for change. And that has been talked about. I mean, we all know that that is how a big portion of this opiate epidemic started is, you know, when you're funding your own, when, when you know, you're picking your own funding, that can lead to a lot of problems. We're just, we're hoping that this market doesn't um, end up like that because it's not as addictive and these patients are truly just looking for medical help. Right. Right. I think, um, I mean, I, I believe you and I, and I, I mean, I want to ask that question because I, I do have this issue with the pharmacists selling, you know, whatever vape carts on sale. I think that the other thing that I worry about is, you know, we in the cannabis space, we talk about how cannabis is so safe. It's so safe. It's so safe. But we also created, when we were talking about the QMP program, we used the opposite argument. Ah, oh, cannabis is so dangerous that we need a four-hour course and we need to have these people registered, right? Like, but, and it's still federally illegal. It's listed on the, you know, it's still a schedule one. We use, I think we use a double standard. I do too. I catch myself using a double standard too. I mean, what I want is more patient caps. I see the, I totally see. I mean, I'm at my, I'm at my limit and, you know, and four or five of my providers are at their limit. The problem with, with what I have is that I have 15 providers. I don't need 15. Right. You know, I could, I could use five experts and not 15 people who are, who aren't as good. And I think that's a problem. I actually think that's a bigger problem for patients than having, you know, somebody who doesn't know anything about cannabis write a letter. Do I mind that program? You know, I don't know. We'll, I guess we'll yet to see on my side, um, Mm -hmm. you know, how many patients get it. The one thing I do think about this bill that I like is for a small percentage of patients who cannot afford a specialty consultation, who can go to their primary care provider, who can convince that person to put it, you know, to bill the insurance Mm -hmm. on the visit for however you want to justify that, you know, there are going to be some patients who really need the help and who can access cannabis in that way. So I, I think, you know, on that side, I'm a supporter. Uh, Do I, do I like the whole thing? Eh, so far, I don't know, Desiree. Right. And, and, uh, we have talked about still creating, we talked about it again yesterday, creating specialist cannabis specialists. So pockets of doctors that had taken the QMP course, maybe a little bit more education and they didn't have a cap. Um, that's not off the table. That's something that, that we talk about all the time. A couple of the lobbyists and I talked about it uh, yesterday and there's still a lot of interest there. It's just getting the details nailed out uh, or hammered out and that that we can get the legislative body on board. That's, that's where we're at with that. Because the one thing that they really want is if the doctors are doing that, this, these specialist doctors, they want them to take insurance. They want it to be the cost of a copay. 
And so that's, if we can get, if we can get there, I think we can make specialists happen. And I think that you're right. Like if I could send patients to a specialist that was doing what the pharmacist tech, you know, the pharmacist is doing where they're reporting back to the original doctor and saying, this is what I put them on. And I understand the other meds and, and everything, but it was only costing them $35. Um, yeah, like that would be amazing, but we haven't been able to get that, a, a, a consensus on that language, but it doesn't mean that we're not trying. We tried really hard last year and um, we'll push back from the UMA this year and, but it's not off the table for this year at all. Two questions with that is what's the UMA say about this bill? Uh, They're the ones that took it from just letting their, if you didn't have your QMP, then you could just write the letters and send it to the pharmacist. Uh, they're the ones who really advocated to just take it down to 15. The other question that I get a lot is why, why don't you take, you know, why don't you take insurance? And, you know, I called Aetna and Medicare and I asked, Hey, can I, you know, can I put this evaluation under the insurance? And their response to me was absolutely no. You know, you'll be, the claim will be denied and you potentially could get kicked off our panel. Have you thought about going to the insurance companies and forcing them to accept these visits and cover these visits? Uh, I talked with some earlier this year, I actually tried to get them to come and meet with uh, some of the QMPs, um, but then coronavirus happened and we could no longer have meetings. The idea there was is kind of they they're not they're not interested. But we have even the de- tar- the doctors of the Department of Health are doing this. They just say I saw a patient for pain, I saw a patient for PTSD, I recommended treatment, and and uh, they they are convinced. Even you know Dr. Mark Babbitts who works. Um, at the Department of Health, when he writes a recommendation, he does, he just, you know, charges copay and he just says, I saw the patient for pain. I saw the patient for PTSD, whatever. And um, he says, I don't report to the insurance companies when I recommend or prescribe other med, you know, all medications. So I don't feel like I have to do it here. And so um, the doctors that feel comfortable with doing that, uh, are and the ones that are worried. I mean, I had a doctor that was doing it for months and then was just like, I feel like I just am wading into dangerous waters here. And so he stopped and then started not taking insurance. So I, I get it, but we, we did reach out to insurance companies and they, they're hesitant for sure, but they were interested to hear that some doctors are doing it. And um, I didn't tell them who obviously, and they, you know, they do see the loophole. Hmm. It's, this is just such a such a touchy subject. I mean, like I could I could dig into this all day because there's so many nuances and there's nuances that benefit one argument one way and another argument another. Uh, what, I mean, what do you think about all this, Chris? <laughs> Hard to keep up on all of it, really. Uh, and like you said, I was following what you were saying earlier, and I can't agree more. It seems like you want to get more of an expert to stay as kind of the main expert when it comes to recommending cannabis instead of just bringing all these new people on. That part just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And, you know, talking to patients, you know, it's one thing to have. And in the beginning of the program, when we were seeing patients in March and in April, we were only getting about one in 10 
Um, you know, maybe one in seven that had never experienced or never tried cannabis before. And so, you know, for a primary care provider to recommend that patient uh, medical cannabis and have the pharmacist take over, I think, or or most of the patients, I think that would be fine. Sorry, I guess that was a little bit unclear. But now we are seeing at least one in five of the patients that we see have no experience in cannabis at all. And the average age has increased as well. We, you know, our average age female patient, for example, is 45 years old. And it wasn't that way earlier in this, in the system. I worry because I want that, you know, I want those patients to get a lot of handholding through the process. And I think cannabis is a little different than like in, you know, in med school, we learn about all of these drugs, but then a point was made to me, new drugs come on the market all the time and we don't get education on those new drugs. We just start writing them. And then we just kind of see how it goes. They're, they're deemed safe by the FDA or by whoever. And a drug rep comes in and gives us a little bit of education. And then we start to write those recommendations. This bill treats cannabis like that, right? You learn a little bit about it. You write the recommendation and then you kind of learn as you go. Cannabis, I don't see it like that. You know, I see it as it's very experiential, you know, you know, and patients want to, yeah. So I like the specialist idea, but again, there are only a handful. There are literally only a handful of specialists in the state legislating around those 10, 20, 50 QMPs. That's not reasonable either. And I'm not trying to skirt around the specialist issue here. In fact, what I look at is I, I guess I'm just looking at the patient and the specialist of the patient. The patient specialist is the doctor that they've had since birth or the doctor that they've been seeing for this condition. And I'm trying to keep the patient with that specialist. And instead of trying to have another doctor acknowledge all of this other stuff that they've gone through and all these other conversations and add cannabis over here, let's just take the bulk of the patient information with the specialist for that patient and add cannabis over here and add a collaborative practice agreement with somebody who understands cannabis, marry those two. And I feel like that that's where the patients are going to get the best. If you know, the best, you know, care, I love cannabis specialists for other reasons, but majority of the time I just feel like I, cause I, I have a son with extreme special needs. If I had to leave his specialists to go find a cannabis specialist, I don't know if I would do it. I, you know, I, I don't have to go to a new doctor every time they change his heart meds. So I would, I would just feel more comfortable keeping him with the doctors that have truly watched him die and saved him and done it all. Right. So, so for me, I'm trying to preserve the specialist that belongs to each patient more than a specialist that belongs to a drug. Yeah. I, I, uh, I like that the way that you're putting that. And I like that idea. What I hear you saying is that there's got to be more acceptance of cannabis as a medication in the healthcare community. And there needs to be more education from, frankly, from the specialists to those other medical providers so that we can all become better at cannabis. Better at cannabis. That's something I can get behind. <laughs> Right. Can that be our new logo? Yeah. Better at cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> we, 
we are better at cannabis. Better at cannabis. Talk to us a little bit, Desiree, about the controlled substance database and this other government list they're threatening to put us on. (laughs) So I'm not going to talk too much on it because I don't like it. And I'm still, I've been arguing it. I still don't like it. I also don't know that there's anything that I can do to stop it. But what I am being allowed and what everybody is working towards is making sure that there are protections that don't just how like there's now I'm on a list that says I'm breaking federal law. Who would like to look at it? Now, to be clear, you would have to have a warrant to see this list. We have looked to see if anybody has been targeted in other states on a CSD list. Those haven't happened. Um, I lost a lot of ground when it just hasn't happened, right? Like if I can't say this is dangerous for patients, if it's never been dangerous for patients. Connor Boyack with Libertas and I are hashing out some details. I'm going to do a little bit more research to make sure that we cover the bases for patients. If we can't get them to not be on this list, my next priority is just making sure that I offer every protection possible. The reason why they want them on is because they truly are, and for our benefit, maybe not with the CSD, but for our benefit in the long run, they want this treated like medication. If it's going to be a federally scheduled medication, they want it on the controlled substance database. I can see that. And I think the more we can line up with regular medications, the better we are in the long run. I just, I don't like this controlled substance database because it is still federally illegal. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be as nervous, right? But Connor and I are going to talk about this. We're going to make sure that patients are protected. You know, Brad Daw even is still involved in these discussions a little bit. He he really wanted this uh, CSD patients added to that, but he still also agrees that let's make sure that there's protections. As soon as I can, um, we've got consensus and I can talk explicitly about the protections that we've added, then we'll do that. But right now, for the record, I don't love it. I don't want it. But I don't think- I'll tell you, I I mean, I think you're, uh, I would say a couple of things about the CSD. One, if the if the federal government classifies this as a scheduled medication and and reschedules it as a controlled substance, then put it on the controlled substance ba- database, they may reschedule it into a lower schedule, and it never it never has to be on the controls. Yeah, then you have to go no don't have to go on the controlled substance database. I have seen the controlled substance database used to discriminate care amongst patients. And I have talked to emergency room physicians who have told me point blank, patient comes in, I'm going to look them up. If they look shady at all, I'm going to look them up on the controlled substance database. If they're, if they have a weed card, I'm not giving them any narcotics. They're going to treat the patient differently in the emergency department. They're going to discriminate care. That doesn't get written down. That doesn't get charted. That, I think, will be a tragedy for patients beyond the, um, you know, the privacy issues. Uh, I fear for the patients in that regard. And I hope they decide not to uh, list us on the controlled substance database. I certainly have my, you know, have other concerns about the bill in general, but I would think that would be something I would, I would hope there'd be a lot of people who support the bill, but the CSD, 
then we don't support it. I love that with the ER doctors though. I have not talked to them. My husband is a fireman. I'm going to talk to him about that too and see if we can, you know, reach out to that demographic of of care providers. I already knew that there was a hurdle with pain patients. If they I have had many of them tell me, if my and these are the ones that rely on a cannabis specialist, right? If my pain doctor finds out that I am using cannabis, even PRN, then I will lose all my other opiates. And they have felt like they've reached this balance, right? Where they are using this, you know, amount of gabapentin and this amount of cannabis, and they finally have pain relief. And so they're terrified, right? Their care will stop on the day that they're added to the database. I don't have numbers to prove that it's going to be catastrophic, right? And I won't have those until it happens. And so, like I said, I can throw a fit. I can say I don't like it. Um, I can yell it from the rooftops. But right now, until I have damage caused by this, I can't find a way to stop it. But if I can reach out to ER doctors and I can reach out to paramedics or something that says, yeah, we're going to be checking that. And yeah, we do discriminate. If I could get them to testify, even that 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 is a possibility, I think maybe that gives us enough reason to say, can we just wait? Um, But even if it gets rescheduled federally, I don't know if that will be enough to to, uh, stop discrimination because if they ever are on the CSD or, you know, if it gets rescheduled, I mean, if they don't have to go on the CSD, then it it stops that. But if they ever have to be on there, then I think we will always have discrimination. There are still a lot of pain doctors crazy enough that do not believe that you can take both. No, I talked to one in the summer. Yeah. I get the referrals from the doc and then, or the, you know, the patient comes in and then I call the call the pain specialist and I say, Hey, you know, they don't want to get kicked off the pain contract. And they're like, Oh yeah, they're going to get kicked off. Yeah. And then and they can't, they, that's not fair. And they're taking away and they're, yeah. And it's, it's a mess, man. This has been, I, I mean, I have really dominated the questions today, Chris, but man, this is no, 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 no. It's fine. I've learned a lot just sitting here listening. I mean, there's so much to learn and so yeah. many ways to get yeah, active. This is your arena, right? It all, you know? Right. I mean, this kind of is, you're right in my wheelhouse yeah, now. Yeah. And now we're getting to the point where I can see the things that potentially could could use a change. Of course, I always have my opinion. Everybody has their own opinion and their own paradigm from which they see things. And I can really appreciate, although I think, you know, we've had a good discussion today about things that I don't agree with. And Um, but I agree with some of the things that you're talking about and some of the things that are needed with the program. So it's nice to know that in America, we can still have a useful dialogue and learn a thing or two from each other. Right. We've proven it again. Is that possible? With cannabis, anything is possible. (laughs) We've proven it again. We're the myth busters. So what else? Is there any other bills that we need to talk about? Anything else that we need to talk about with changes? I think that we need to remember that there's a lot going on with hemp right now. Yeah, I don't have the details of that, but just know that because those haven't, you know, no consensus has been found with those. So just know that those are being worked on and they have something flashing that the hemp, the hemp issues are being worked on and the sponsor is not, uh, they don't want to, 
they don't want to put anybody out of business. They, I don't think, understood the ramifications of what the draft was. But also remember, a draft is only just a draft. That is the time when it's like, hey, guys, this is what I'm thinking. Let me know what you're thinking. You know, and that's the call to become involved. And um, it's, I always tell people, I'm like, it's really notes on a napkin. And so take it for what it is. So I think we're going to see big changes in what they proposed to do with hemp. You know, we've been trying to stick a little bit closer to what is federally going on in other states, what the federal government has proposed and what's happening in other states. So that's going to be discussed. I won't be as involved in that. Um, Mostly I'm just helping make sure that it's happening. And then I'll go back to uh, dealing with a couple other things that we've got going on with patients. So, you know, I did do some law enforcement education this last month. It was really good. We did. We were going to do in-person meetings, but then it was right when the governor said, let's shut down again right before Thanksgiving. So we canceled all the in-person meetings and did some Zoom meetings with even sergeants, you know, supervisors on down to just beat cops that were watching on their phones and their cars. They had excellent questions and the feel of the whole of all of the meetings were that they were uh, really just wanting to do this right. Um, Department of Health did it with me. They actually invited me and they did a presentation about what was legal because we were finding that so many times when I have a run-in with a patient, they the police officer truly didn't understand the law. And so they wrote a ticket. Um, funny enough, it, the code is usually like 5837, whatever, which is the exact code that says you're legal, but they just didn't understand. And so they thought, well, I'll give the ticket and then it will be worked out in court. And then the court was turning around and saying, well, the cop wouldn't have written the ticket if this wasn't illegal. So we're going to prosecute. And it's been a mess. So having these education, yeah, having these education classes has been amazing because uh, they truly are, they needed the education. But since that day, uh, and then we made a a handout that we gave to them for them to give to all of their officers. It doesn't tell them how to handle a traffic stop or something with a, or an encounter with a medical cannabis patient, but it gives them the law. Like this is, this means this, and I can send it over to you. And we're actually creating one, a patient toolbox letter as well, just for patients to carry. And so it's almost done. It's basically done. We just need a make sure the lawyers look over it and it's good. And so then the patients can carry this as well and say, okay, but look up these law codes really quick. And we not only say, look them up, we cite them. So it's boring because it's just, this is the problem. This is the law code. You know, you say that I can't have it out of a blister pack. Here it is. You know, Um, you say I can't have raw flour. Yes, I can. You know, so, so because I have a medical cannabis card, you you can't charge me with paraphernalia because I have a vape pen, which they're like, well, we're not going to give you possession, but we can still give give you paraphernalia has happened a couple of times. So we have those written out. We gave one to the law enforcement officers. I'm hopeful and I'm crossing my fingers here. But since we did that, um, I have not had any cannabis patients come to me saying that they were targeted by law enforcement, even though they were legal. That's been the longest span since this plan started that I haven't had patients come to me. So I'm hopeful that we actually did see some changes there, that the, that the trickle down and the, the education got passed around. But they really were uh, trying to understand. Some of them had said that they had had a traffic stop and they were unable to get on their, um, I forget the name of it. It's a 
weird name. Anyway, they have a system where they can look and check if you have anything, a controlled, controlled substance, I believe, and cannabis. We put it on the same one. And they could just look and it's not, it doesn't say anything else except for, you know, Desiree Hennessy, yes or no. And it's like, Desiree Hennessy, does she have a medical cannabis card? Yes. No other information. But some officers were just simply like, hey, I can't get on that one. I've tried. I haven't been able to. So I gave a ticket. So the Department of Health was able to talk them through that and help get them in touch with the people that would help them be able to access that and, and understand it. So hopefully that made some big changes and we'll quit seeing patients targeted. Yeah, that's important. What was it yesterday? You were talking about some PTSD qualification on yeah. a video I was watching uh, on so Facebook. The product review board meets um, every month and they are led by our friend Perry Fine. Um, and they um, they meet and they discuss products and they recently started discussing conditions that we've approved. Um, the product review board uh, is not, their job is not to take conditions or add conditions. That was done by the legislature, but they do make recommendations and it's up to the state to follow them or not. They have taken a couple of different conditions. Like one was MS a couple months ago and they were like, that has little to no value. Medical cannabis, we feel like has little to no value. And then they vote on it. Well, yesterday in the morning, what they did was there was com- some confusion and, and a lot of concern that they had voted that with medical cannabis, they felt like it had no value, zero value with PTSD. And they voted as a board that that is their position now, um, which is unnerving if you're a PTSD patient. That does not mean that they have the power to take it off the list, but they will mention that as a re- as one of as a recommendation to the state of Utah. I do not see them taking it off the conditions list this year, um, but it is something that we all need to be aware of, and we all need to, you know, especially me. Um, and doctors that have put patients on for PTSD, we need to be ready to push back if that arises. Like I said, it's not that we have no reason to believe that they're going to make any movement on that this year. I do believe it's the first condition that they've said that they found had zero value with medical medical cannabis had zero value with PTSD. I don't think any of the other ones that they voted on they found had zero benefit. So, and now they're just looking at studies from outside of Utah. They're not looking at patients. They're not talking to them They're And, and so they're just looking at studies. So that's what they voted on. Gosh, I, I hate that's it. so frustrating. The MS one is frustrating as well. I mean, I can, I can hear my MS patients telling me if I don't have cannabis in the morning, in the middle of the day, they're low dose people. I can tell when I adjust my dose and I feel better and I can do more. I'm like all these things, the PTSD, like there's no, no, there's not good. There's not going to be good studies. These are, these are psychological illnesses that, that take people discussing this with people who use the product. Like that's, uh, uh, I have some data. I have some, I have anecdotal data that, that I could, that I could share with the board, you know, self-reported data. Right. And, and, and that's what I told them. I said, you know, it's kind of sad when I was talking to the department of health, they said it's sad because Maybe you don't have good data um, from other states or out of country, although I've seen some, but the, the product review board is so very critical. But I, 
I said, the, the funny thing with PTSD is I don't get a call from the patient themselves saying, oh my gosh, that was wonderful. Like that helps me so much. I get a call from the spouse and they say, wow, like I've got my husband back or my wife is finally happy again. And sorry, that it's hard because I've heard those testimonials and the thought that somebody just easily looked through a book and said, we see no value. It hurts after uh, you know, months of, of getting to know these patients and loving them and seeing their progress and seeing them be suicidal and then not. And uh, it's hard to hear. It definitely is just hard to hear. So now one thing that we need to remember is that um, the product review board is probably our big next biggest hurdle to stop us from adding any conditions to the conditions list that we have. Although they don't get to add them or take them off themselves, the legislative body is relying heavily on them to do the research on what conditions we can add. And that's why everybody hates the compromise, but we have to remember, I mean, we fought tooth and nail to get anything on paper. Everything we have had on paper has not been taken away. Um, once, once the compromise happened, uh, they have not backtracked at all. And so it's, we knew it was still going to be hard to expand it, especially the conditions list. We've tried every year, but like it or hate it, the compromise is that safety net that has stopped them from taking anything else. If we had passed Prop 2, which again, I will say it tell them blue in the face, was never, we never thought that we would keep Prop 2 from the day we started writing it. Um, did we want to? Yes. Did we think that they were going to let us keep it? No, we live in Utah. But we knew that after, you know, when we walked out of with the compromise, not loving all of it, but realizing that they wouldn't take any of that away and they haven't. But adding is, is hard, but the product review board is probably our biggest obstacle in adding new cases. I personally would like to see sleep disturbances added. I felt like we had some interest in adding some anxiety, depression, but but then in at the end it was decided that maybe we would let the product review board decide you know if they if they recommend it yeah you're going to have a tough time with anxiety with the product review board well tough, because tough time. they do believe that anxiety bipolar they still they believe that mental issues it, it can it has the potential of making it worse they like almost like a 50/50 yeah. like it could make it worse it could make it better and so they don't want to put patients at risk but my thought is, are the other medications you're trying not putting the patient at risk for other things? I mean, right. My husband's a fireman and he will, he'll tell anybody I've never been on a suicide patient that wasn't on an antidepressant. So, you know, he's like, I, you know, whatever reason that is, it's either not working or, or whatever else. But he said, you know, it's obviously not, it's not stopping all of them. So why not allow them try to try something else before they take an exit. Yeah. Well, Desiree, this has been great. I, uh, I'm excited to, I'm always excited to talk to you because I believe that you have the patient's interest in mind. Uh, you definitely want what's best for the patients and you go for it. So bravo. I think you're, you do good work when it comes to that. And so, and I appreciate you being willing to come on and, and, uh, you know, talk about the process and be honest about the process, about how it's going and, and what you think the pros and cons are of, of what's being proposed. And 
And so Utah Patients Coalition, I think, is a good. It's a good. Yeah, thank you. It's a good place for for Utahns to to um, to know they're getting good support. Thank you. Thank you. So we have a Facebook page, which is probably the you know the best way if they're especially if they're watching this. So Utah Patients um, on Facebook. We have Twitter and we have Instagram that I don't use a lot, but. I have somebody that's just offered to do media. So hopefully you'll see stuff there. I just can't do Twitter. Like I'm not, I'm too old. And then we can do, and then we also have a website. So utahpatients.org. So like, if you get on our website, you can go through like, you can go up to a tab, like compassionate use board. Say you have a good or bad experience. You can leave a review. That just helps us know when we talk to them, you know, what concerns to bring up or stuff like that. So there's, there's, it's a little interactive there. So. Anything else that you guys want to talk about before we wrap this episode up or anything? I don't think so. Anything? Okay. When we'll go over more things uh, in future episodes, Tim, uh, to let listeners know kind of as the end of the year kind of wraps up with getting cards and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, how can people get a hold of you, Tim? What's the best way for that if they want to get their card or anything? Best way is utahmarijuana.org. Um, we've got uh, educational video series that we've we have that have been posted there. We always host the podcast there and do a transcription or a, a, a summary of those. If you want to look through and uh, you want to pick up on the cannabis culture in Utah and kind of uh, learn about all the history and the the stakeholders, we have a lot of people on here now, Chris. So utahmarijuana.org is a great place to go. How about you? Very cool. And uh, you can listen to my other podcast, IamSaltLake.com. I got a really fun episode actually coming out uh, this weekend. So a couple of days after this episode releases on all the dog-friendly places in Salt Lake City that you can go to. So if you're a cannabis patient and you have a dog, you might want to check that episode out. So <laughs> that, that'll be a great Sunday morning. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, yeah, just reach out to Tim or myself if you want to come on the show and leave us a review or reach out and say hello. And uh, yeah, we'll let, uh, that's it. We'll uh, we'll wrap this episode up then, you guys. So thanks for coming on, Desiree. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Desiree. Stay safe out there, everyone.